If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. In a few weeks, we'll have a great guest on the show, former Detective Lindsey Wade. Lindsey retired from the Tacoma, Washington Police Department in 2018 after 21 years of service, 14 of which were as a detective working sex crimes, assaults, child abuse, missing persons, and homicide cases. You may recognize her name as someone I referenced in our episode Point Defiance from 2020, where we discussed the cases of Michelle Welsh and Jenny Bastian, and quite a few other similar unsolved Washington cases. Today, May 30th, 2023, Lindsay just released her first book, In My DNA, which talks a lot about her life working as a detective, as well as a few of the cases that defined her career. In preparation for her joining us for an episode and to celebrate her new book, which is an excellent read, by the way, I decided to select a case from it to share with you today. The 4th of July in Tacoma, Washington, is like any other small city throughout the United States. The celebrated day of the United States of America's independence from Britain is marked with parades, barbecues, air shows, fireworks, private parties, and other community celebrations. In Tacoma, there's a widely loved 4th of July celebration called Tacoma Summer Blast, where vendors can sell their goods and booths, people enjoy a cold brew at the beer garden, musical acts take the stage, and it all ends with 20 minutes of fireworks. It's safe to say the day is one of the happiest and most fun for residents. It's not usually a day marked with a tragedy, which would leave people paralyzed in fear and a family desperate for answers. But unfortunately, that's what happened on that day in 2007. On July 4, 2007, a horrifying incident unfolded when a 12-year-old girl was abducted from outside her home in Tacoma, Washington. The relentless efforts of the police led them through a maze of leads, gradually narrowing down their search until they finally identified the prime suspect. As the realization sank in that yet another girl in Tacoma went missing, the city was gripped with fear, worrying that she may be lost forever. However, the discovery of her remains brought no solace. It only brought more anguish as subsequent failures in the justice system came to light as the investigation went on. In today's episode, we delve into the heart-wrenching case of Zena Linick and shed light on how the capture of her murderer 
ultimately led to the closure of multiple cases. The Linick family migrated from Ukraine to Washington state in the late 1990s. Mikhail and Valentina Linick had eight children, and they lived in the neighborhood of Hilltop, a diverse community located in Pierce County. On that 4th of July, most of the Linick children spent the day playing in or around their house. That evening, some of them walked to the end of the alley that ran behind their house to watch fireworks. 12-year-old Zena Linick left the kids at the end of the alley and came back to the house just before 9. At around 9.30, her father requested that she go back outside and get the rest of the kids to come back home for the night. Shortly after she went back outside, Mikhail heard a scream from behind his house and immediately recognized it as the voice of Zena. He ran out back, and as he poked his head into the alley that ran down their row of houses, he caught a glimpse of an Asian adult male getting into a gray van and quickly driving away. He searched for Zena for around 15 minutes along the alleyway and throughout the neighborhood, and then one of her siblings found her pink flip-flops in the alley near where the van had been parked. This was alarming. Zena's older sister called police to report that she had been taken by, quote, a Cambodian man in a gray van. Though the man with the gray van wasn't in the alley for long, Mikhail caught quite a bit of detail that he was able to relay to officers when they arrived at their home at around 10 p.m. He described the man as roughly 5 foot 8, on the thin side, and wearing a light-colored baseball cap. The gray van had the numbers 1677 on the license plate and possibly the letter B. They shared photos of Zena and her description, which was 4 foot 10 inches tall, 80 pounds, blonde hair, brown eyes, last seen wearing her hair in a ponytail, a pink t-shirt, orange and yellow capri pants, and flip-flops. Right away, police treated the case seriously and were able to pursue a person of interest thanks to a lead from the family. They mentioned that there was an Asian man who lived down the street who drove a gray van. Now, I think it's important to pause here and explain something. When a child goes missing, there is criteria that has to be met to issue an Amber Alert. Here's the criteria according to our government website. There's a reasonable belief by law enforcement that an abduction has occurred. The law enforcement agency believes that the child is in imminent danger of serious bodily harm or death. There's enough descriptive information about the victim and the abduction for law enforcement to issue an Amber Alert. The abduction is of a child aged 17 years or younger. The child's name and other critical data elements, including the child abduction flag, have been entered into the National Crime Information Center, or NCIC, system. Uh, what age was Zena, and what order in her siblings was she? I didn't catch that if you said it. I actually don't know her order. So there were eight of them, and she's 12 years old. So I think she's somewhere near the middle, because I do believe there were younger and older siblings. But I, I don't know for sure like what order she was born. So what do you think? Your first gut reaction to hearing what happened and what's required for an Amber Alert, do you think one should be issued at this point? I think so. They have all of her information. They have partial information. And they believe they even have like the actual person who might have been involved. Yeah. What's the harm? So Exactly. Right. Yeah. And they know it's not like she's not out wandering or uh, a family member has her or something. It's like mm -hmm. especially if it's have witnesses, if it's unlike her to do that, too. Yeah. Right. And so at this point in the case, I think anyone would argue the criteria is met because I believe uh, at that point, yes, they would be 
entering her information into NCIC. Mm-hmm. So it would be meeting that qualification and it could go live. But that did not happen at that moment. In Lindsay's book, she talks about this. So just after 10 p.m. that night, she was looped into the case, but other detectives were already working on it and pursuing the neighbor as their lead. She mentions that police were able to locate the suspect's brother who happened to be home, and they learned from him that the suspect was at a nearby party. They also pinged the suspect's cell phone to confirm he was in that general location. Now, she writes that they were asked to hold off on issuing an Amber Alert because they had the suspect nearby. So I don't know if it was to, like, Hmm. not scare him off or I don't know, like, what would they be? I would think the only hesitation would be like, hey, we don't want to put his info out because we don't know yet. Like, why don't we go get him at the party and then talk to him and be like, hey, where were you? Do you have this kind of car? Like that is valid. But like, what is the concern in issuing it? Even if if, even if or at least issue the car and her description, because a you would get a lead on it if he wasn't the person. Right. And B, people would probably stop him for from leaving if they got that. information. Or you could be kind of vague enough to where it's like, here's what witnesses say he looked like. You know, you don't have to say we're looking for this guy. Yeah. But we saw this car, this license plate, well, this keep, behavior. Keep that in your in your mind. I'm sure nothing will go wrong. Police arrived at the location where the party was taking place to find the suspect's van parked in the driveway. No one was inside of it, and there didn't seem to be any indication Zena ever was. People were quickly exiting the party, and they realized the suspect had taken off because he had been alerted that the police were looking for him by his brother. So the same brother that was helping Mm. him texted or called him and said, hey, they're looking for you. So that's not a good sign. He eventually gave up and cooperated with police, answering their questions and allowing them to search his vehicle. He fled the party not knowing why police were even looking for him. So I'm guessing he had previous arrest Mm, or maybe he wasn't maybe he didn't have a valid visa or something like Mm -hmm. there was probably a reason he took off or you're at a party and who knows what hors d'oeuvres are being served sure their interviewing and their search turned up zero evidence that he had anything to do with Zena's abduction to further confirm what detectives were already now sure about within a couple of days he passed a polygraph and was eliminated as a suspect By 4 a.m. July 5th, so it was still kind of that same Mm -hmm. night into the morning, Lindsay Wade, along with several other detectives, were gathered in a room to discuss what the next steps were in the investigation. And obviously, it's an Amber Alert. By now, the criteria was definitely met. The only issue was that there wasn't a full license plate number. And if you ask me, a few numbers is good mm, enough. Yeah, or just the car description. Or mm-hmm. yeah. Well, there was a little bit of back and forth on what the what the make of the car was. They said it was a boxy gray van, and that mm. kind of describes every single minivan That's ever created. True. I just mean, like, if you already have... Uh, somewhat of a car description and then you have part of a plate mm-hmm. that definitely narrows it down. I, I, my guess is that it's a Chevy Astro van. <laughs> they all were. So boxy. Very boxy. <laughs> the boxiest. Or maybe a, no, Toyota Previa is too tear-shaped. Yeah. I'll get back to you. Or pear-shaped. <laughs> it's got a fat bottom. Now, one of the reasons there was a concern about not having a full number is because of that, they're not allowed to put the license plate number on the reader boards along the highway. So instead, they all agreed that what they would do is put text about tuning into a radio station to get the latest Amber Alert information. 
With this decision officially made, they alerted the public information officer that it was time to issue the alert. Here's the problem. At the time, one person was in charge of issuing that alert, the public information officer, Sergeant Mark Fulgham. The day before, he had been working a very long day. And when he got off work, he went home and he went to sleep. He was then notified that he needed to issue the alert, but he took a sleeping pill. So he neglected to actually issue the Amber Alert before falling back asleep. Because of this, there was another six hours that no Amber Alert was issued to warn the public about a missing child in the area. So it's been hours. It's been like 13 hours at this point. That's a real multi-level failure. That's a failure that shouldn't have ever happened because the freaking process should have been different. And yeah. we'll talk about it's that. It's like you can be mad at that guy, but they shouldn't have had it all be on one guy or had it be like, well, let's wait till we really, really know. Mm-hmm. By this time, the FBI joined the efforts by bringing in roughly 40 agents to help the Tacoma police. There were specialist teams like the Child Abduction Rapid Deployment Team, as well as the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. The rest of the day on July 5th was spent canvassing the neighborhood. Neighbors were interviewed and dogs were brought in to follow Zena's scent. The dogs even alerted on another neighbor's house. Police busted in through the door because no one was home to answer, but there was no sign of Zena. It was likely that the scent was just left over from her being in the area. Tips were pouring in and being followed up on, but nothing seemed to line up. They even took a call from a psychic because they were desperate for leads. And of course, the locations mentioned by the psychic didn't bring up anything new. What I really enjoyed about Lindsay's book is that you get this behind the scenes sneak peek at just what the heck is going on during this time when they don't have any solid suspects. There was this massive effort to locate new leads, and we got to kind of see the genius of these detectives. And I think one of the things that really made her successful in her career is that she always looked for clues within other cases. Mm. For example, she knew that in this case, there was a gray van with either 1677 or 1667 in the plate number. So she searched Tacoma case reports where there was a gray van involved so she could look at the license plate numbers. That's smart. Now, this method ended up turning up two potential leads in the case. One of those leads was an Asian man who lived within two miles of the Linick family. He was quickly eliminated because he had a solid alibi. The other was a case regarding a Chevy Astro van <gasps> that had been broken into in a Lowe's parking lot the previous May. The license plate had the number B17667B. The license plate is spot on, right? Right. It has sevens, it has sixes, and it even has the letter B. But here's the issue. The man in the case was a white male. Well, they followed up on it anyway on July 6th, and what they learned is that it wasn't his van. He was the victim of a vehicle prowl at the Lowe's parking lot after he drove the van there, but the vehicle belonged to his boss, a man named Terrapon Adhan. I really love when you were talking about her figuring that out. And it's an example I feel we hear all the time. Sometimes all it takes is for someone to do like detective work. Yes. <laughs> A I was thinking tedious that too. work. I was kind of laughing like 
yeah, that's awesome that she did that. But also, like, how was that not what they were going to do? Well, I think it's just they have so many people on it, right? You have tech experts looking at DMV records mm-hmm. and so much is going on. And it just boils down to, like, solid, regular old police yeah. work. Yeah, not, it's not simple, to di- stupid. Not to diminish what she's done at all. That's awesome. But that that's not what everyone does. Yeah. It's and crazy. That's true. It's and nuts. also, we don't always get to hear about those details. All mm-hmm. we see in the media is, and then they were caught due to X, Y, Z. It's rare that we know how. And her writing this from her point of view of actually working on the case, you get so many more details. Mm. That's cool. Tara Pon Adhan, who goes by the name Lee, was born in Bangkok, Thailand in 1965. He immigrated to the United States with his mother and her American Army husband at the age of 11. The family moved around a lot, living in San Diego and North Carolina. In high school, Adhan did well in math and English, as well as played multiple sports, including wrestling and soccer. After graduating high school, he became a Buddhist, and then he enlisted in the U.S. Army and trained to be an elite ranger. While in the Army, he met his first wife, Barbara, whom he married in 1986 and proceeded to have two daughters with. After being deployed to Germany for a short time, the family moved back to the United States and settled in Tacoma, Washington. In 1990, the then 25-year-old Adhan was arrested for raping his 16-year-old half-sister. During the attack, he held her down, choked her and punched her, threatened her with a knife, spread Vaseline over her genitals, and proceeded to penetrate her with his fingers before raping her. The charge brought against him for this was second-degree rape, But, as you can imagine, those were dropped to first-degree incest. In order to get that charge dropped, he had to agree to 60 days in jail and 60 months of weekly sex offender treatment. Also, that's bullshit because incest makes it sound like she was... Like okay they were just like it. engaging in yeah, a relationship. Yeah, but it's bad, you guys. You can't do that. You're related. And it's like, no, it needs to be rape because that's what he did. And it was violent and unwanted. Ugh. And she was a child. Yeah, is I there agree. A, is there a charge like that, like familial rape or assault? I think they, I is think there it a would be. Circumstance or something? I mean, I'm no lawyer, but I think it's incest plus rape. Mm. So, I mean, if this happened today, I don't think this charge would be what we would see. No. But I don't know if it's his first time having a run in. They never cease to surprise me with these charges. Very true. (laughs) Now, of course, his family enabled him. His wife stayed with him despite the fact that she described him as possessive and abusive. And his mother even tried to convince his sister to drop the charges and essentially blamed her for the crime. So, you know, huge surprise there. Yeah, shocking. During his treatment, he was diagnosed as a pedophile with alcoholism, sadism, depression, and a personality disorder with borderline and paranoid features. Ed Hahn admitted to molesting his half-sister when she was three years old and again when she was 12 and then the rape when she was 16. So I have plenty of reason to believe that he always did it and that the violent rape triggered her to turn him in. Like, I think he's always been inappropriate with her. Yeah, or just being old enough to know. Yeah. To be like, wait a minute, now I've no- learned about this and it's not okay. His counselor said he had a, quote, devious, manipulative, aggressive, and over-controlling personality with clear-cut power needs. He also said he was a, quote, disturbed individual who had constant difficulty acknowledging his problems. In 1991, a notice of violation was submitted to the court because he wasn't compliant in getting his treatment. 
The next year, in 1992, he was back in court because he threatened someone with a weapon when he held a gun to a man's chest outside of a bar. Just a casual gun hold to the chest. And I want to guess what he got for that. Mm, Slap on the wrist. Five days in jail. Mm. Not even not even like a prison sentence, but just probably the county jail. Yeah. It took seven years for Ed Hahn to complete the sex offender treatment program. And in 1997, he no longer had to go to treatment or have supervision. He was classified as a level one sex offender, which is the lowest level, the level given to people who are the least likely to reoffend but he would still have to register. In early 2004, Child Protective Services had an anonymous tip submitted to them that a man, name unknown, was living with an underage girl and that he had purchased her. The call was followed up on by the Pierce County Sheriff's Office, but there didn't seem to be any girl living at the address they were given by the caller. Two weeks later, another call to CPS was received. This time, the caller knew the man's name and pointed them in the direction of Terrapon at Han. Unfortunately, the expected investigation didn't happen because Pierce County law enforcement claims they never received the new information from CPS. So that fucking sucks. Yeah. Like that is a real misstep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somebody somewhere didn't. Either didn't send it or the people got it and were like, oh, uh, we never got it. Or they're like, oh, it was already followed up on and it it wasn't going anywhere. Yeah, if they give it a glance over it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. But that's these are the types of things that always happen in cases like these where yep. one of those calls, had it been appropriately followed up on, nothing would have happened, you know? Mm-hmm. Ugh. By 2007, Ed Hahn, the former Army Ranger, had worked as a tow truck driver, a Boeing employee working with hazardous waste, and now he spent his time as a sometimes handyman. He had three children, two daughters and a son. People who knew him described him as fun and pleasant, but it's highly likely they didn't really know him or his past. But that would all change. After learning from the victim of the Lowe's vehicle prowl incident in May of 2007, Police were on a mission to locate Terrapon at Han. Not only did he drive a gray van with a license plate number eerily similar to the one Mr. Linick described, they learned that the suspect was a level one sex offender. Another red flag, when they found his van, they noted that the license plates had been switched with a sedan. Mm-hmm. By July 8th, police soon began working their way through Ed Han's Tacoma neighborhood, hoping that one of his neighbors had helpful information. One of the people they talked to mentioned that they had seen him jumping through backyards and over fences. Again, not a good look. Eventually, Lindsay Wade spotted him walking throughout the neighborhood. She approached him, gun in hand, searched him, and informed him that they were investigating a case of a missing girl. He agreed to take the detectives back to his home. While they were in the house, detectives were eyeing everything, looking for evidence that they didn't yet have a search warrant for, while one detective was conducting an interview with Ed Hahn. They asked him about his whereabouts on July 4th, to which he claimed he was home watching TV and talking on the phone with a friend. Then he went to sleep. They inquired about why he had stolen plates on his van. He had an explanation. He said his own plates had been stolen and he took some plates off of an abandoned car seemingly to avoid being pulled over. He, of course, vehemently denied having anything to do with the disappearance of Zena Linick. 
Eventually, Adhan was taken into custody and booked into the ICE detention center for overstaying his visa. Now, this was, of course, to buy some extra time while they investigated his possible involvement in Zena's disappearance. So at this point, are they thinking that the rumors of a man having a child that he bought and the abduction are the same? Like, yes, they think the the. We're talking about the same victim. So there is a timeline of like July 7th to the 11th where all of this stuff is happening. Every day it's a bombshell after a bombshell after a bombshell. So on this particular day, I think they're starting to realize it's him. Mm. They are going into his house to try to get evidence. And then people are online searching and then they're calling on leads. So I'll talk about that in a few moments. But yes, everything was happening at once. By July 10th, the Pierce County prosecutor added to Ed Hahn's charges with a new charge for failing to register as a sex offender. They started to understand what type of guy he was, and before long, they started compiling a list of other cases he may have been linked to, cases similar to Zena's. They even tracked down the underage girl that was mentioned in the anonymous tip called to CPS. She told FBI agents that her mother had sold her to Adhan for sex for $2,000. She was raped repeatedly by him, nearly 200 times by her own estimation. And when she was 16, she finally ran away from him after he raped her at gunpoint. So this started at age 12 for her, 12 to 16. Once the appropriate warrants were secured, Adhan's house was searched thoroughly. They, of course, found very creepy items sloppily hidden in the trash, items such as duct tape, zip ties, and a dildo wrapped in paper towels. It's believed that a lot of evidence was removed from the home and even destroyed by him. For instance, he had purchased a king-size sheet that was never recovered during any of their searches. The case against Ed Hahn for Zena was technically circumstantial, but it was growing stronger with each piece of evidence they uncovered. It was assumed Zena was likely dead, which is typical in cases like these after so many days. But authorities hadn't officially filed charges against him for kidnapping or murder. Instead, they gathered their circumstantial evidence and presented it to him. Not only would they be pursuing him for Zena's case, but they had another one from the year 2000 that he looked very good for. Not to mention they had him for multiple rapes of the underage girl that he purchased. He was basically told, you're up against the death penalty for everything you've done unless you can lead us to Zena's body. Detectives finally got the call that Edhan was ready to talk. After some dicking around, like they always do, going back and forth, he eventually admitted to killing her and that he could take them to her body. Several ICE agents and detectives piled into vehicles and caravanned out to Silver Lake Recreation Area along a road that led up to Mount St. Helens. He pointed them down a narrow road and the search began. Before long, one of the FBI agents found Zena's body. Her remains were taken for an autopsy by the Pierce County Medical Examiner's Office. Upon completion of the autopsy, the forensic pathologist noted that Zena had died due to homicidal violence caused by blunt force trauma to her head and asphyxiation. DNA found on oral swabs of Zena's body matched DNA from Edhan. They got their man, but there was plenty of work to do because Zena wasn't his only victim.
Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days. And when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out and choose more styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours or spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothes for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy, like a pair of faux leather pants for my new band. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits, all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom or the motherly figure in your life? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your recipient a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about, for example, your mom's life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories forever. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Obviously, we love anything surrounding storytelling. It's what we do. So to be able to gift this to my mom, to not only hear her stories, but the stories of my grandparents and other family members, it will create a cherished gift for all of us to enjoy. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN for 10% off today. On May 31st, 2000, a soldier stationed at Fort Lewis, just south of Tacoma, was driving down the highway when she found a young girl in need of assistance. The girl had duct tape on her wrists and was holding a stick as if to protect herself. The girl was taken to the hospital where she was treated for serious injuries due to sexual trauma. When the girl was able to tell her story, she explained that her name was Sabrina Rasmussen and she had been walking to her middle school with a friend when her friend decided to take a shortcut, leaving her to walk the rest of the way alone. That's when a Dodge pickup pulled in front of her about a block away from her middle school. The man got out and threatened her, saying he would stab her if she didn't come with him. 
She attempted to run away, but he was able to grab her, place a hand over her mouth to muffle any noise, and force her into his truck. He drove her to a wooded area, bound her wrists with duct tape, as well as over her eyes as a blindfold. He then ripped off her clothes and began to rape her, which lasted for over an hour. Once the attack was over, the man just left her in the woods by herself, and she somehow managed to pull off the duct tape that had been over her eyes and wrists. She picked up a stick that she believed could protect herself if he came back and started making her way back towards the highway. Several cars went by before she was found by the female soldier. The woman drove alongside her until Sabrina felt safe enough to get into the car. Sabrina was able to describe her attacker to a sketch artist. She believed he was Asian or Hispanic, and he had dark hair that was flat on top. DNA was found during Sabrina's sexual assault exam, but it didn't match any DNA that was in the national database at the time. So what they ended up doing was filing charges against the owner of the DNA using a John Doe warrant. This is a kind of warrant that allows you to file charges against a DNA holder which also allows you to avoid running into that stupid little issue called the statute of limitations. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So you could, and they ended up changing laws, right? Like in Oregon, we've seen it um, extend for when there's DNA right. evidence. And that's kind of the same thing. So this is basically once this DNA is matched, this person is under arrest for this crime. Exactly. So that's that if you cool. ever capture them, you can charge them for it, even though it might be 20 years later. That's cool. Once Ed Hahn was in custody for the kidnapping and murder of Zena Linick, authorities were able to match his DNA to the sample taken in Sabrina's case. On July 19, 2007, 15 days after the kidnapping and murder of Zena, Ed Hahn was arraigned on charges for the rape and kidnapping of Sabrina Rasmussen. And she went to watch it all. She knew immediately that he was the man who traumatized her, and she knew she would be able to take the stand and testify against him in court. That's which right. she wasn't sure about, right? Like, she's like, I don't oh, know if yeah. I can do this. But the minute she saw him, she's like, okay, I might, be not, I might not be ready today, but I will be. Yeah, screw this guy. Shortly thereafter, he was charged with aggravated first-degree murder, first-degree kidnapping, and rape in the Xena Linnick case. He also received seven counts of rape for the girl he purchased and raped repeatedly over several years. Initially, he pleaded not guilty to all charges against him. Shocker. He ended up being held on $2 million bail in Zena's case. Now, it took several months, but in 2008, 42-year-old Terrapon Edhan pleaded guilty to all charges against him and was sentenced to life in prison without parole plus 811 months. He was then relocated to the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington. Lindsey Wade got the chance to talk to him again in prison, and she shared his motive. He claimed that he had wanted to spend the 4th of July with his son watching fireworks, but his ex-wife refused to allow it, and he got mad. He told Lindsey, quote, To hell with it. If I can't have my kid, somebody else isn't going to have their kid neither. I wanted to destroy a human. It's my wife's fault. Yeah. My ex-wife. I mean, these types of people, it's the perfect storm. Like, obviously, he's got this aggressive person, borderline personality disorder with a tendency to be a pedophile and rape people. It's like a big storm for whoever the next person he contacts. And all he needs is one tiny bit of a uh, something resembling an excuse. Yep. 
to be like, well, I did it this time. Like, well, then what about the other times? Well, and he won't acknowledge that he has <sighs> problems. So he probably doesn't think he's ever done anything wrong. <sighs> he then went on to claim that after he kidnapped Zena, he put duct tape on her mouth and wrists and drove her away from the alley. While they were en route to his home, she was making too much noise. So he tried to quiet her by tightening a zip tie that he had put around her head and mouth. He then claims that when he got home, she was already dead. Only then did he bring her into his home and sexually assault her body before wrapping her up in a blanket and storing her in his laundry room for multiple days before eventually driving her out to be dumped near Silver Lake. I don't buy that, but also I want to talk to Lindsay Wade about it because was there any evidence in her autopsy that indicated that the assault could have been postmortem? Right. I don't know. I've never read anything about that. It seems to me like he's trying to explain it away like she wasn't hurt. You know, I, I hope for, oh, to yeah. God she was dead first. To where he's like, well, I didn't murder her and I didn't rape her while it was, she was he's alive. Saying, yeah, I accidentally murdered her and then I did it. But I, then I you didn't... turn around and say, I wanted to destroy a human. I yeah. wanted to bullshit. Like, I wanted a family to feel the pain I was feeling. So did you just accidentally kill her before your plot could unfold? Right. Or because you were like probably so excited and hopped up? Or <sighs> is it real? I don't know. So I want to talk to her about it to see if they're if if they looked into that or, or maybe the a combination of things of like, yeah, he gets in whatever whatever state of mind he's in and is holding the zip tie and doesn't realize that he's holding it tight or that he'd put it so tight. Or yeah, something. I mean, it definitely could have happened so, that way. I don't, you know, until we know exactly what yeah, the autopsy said. And it could mm. be not something that they could figure out. I don't know. Yeah. So hopefully um, she'll be able to answer that question. There are several other cases that Ed Hahn has been considered as a potential suspect. In our Point Defiance episode, I went into detail regarding the cases of Michelle Welsh and Jennifer Bastian. On March 26, 1986, 12-year-old Michelle and her younger sisters were playing at a local park when Michelle went to use the restroom. When her sisters returned to look for her, Michelle was nowhere to be found. Her body was discovered later that day in a gulch near the park. She had been sexually assaulted and murdered. On August 4, 1986, just months after the murder of Michelle, 13-year-old Jennifer left her house on a bicycle to visit a nearby park. She never returned home, and her disappearance sparked an intensive search effort. After two weeks, her body was found in a wooded area of Point Defiance Park. She also had been sexually assaulted and murdered. Both of these cases went cold quickly, despite the rigorous efforts of the Tacoma police. At the time of Zena's murder, both cases were still unsolved, and it was believed that a single suspect had murdered both of them. Now, in 2007, it seemed Ed Hahn could be the prime suspect. As it turned out, he couldn't possibly have done it because he hadn't yet moved to the area. But he was a big focus for a short period of time before eventually being ruled out. Now, in recent years, both cases were solved thanks to genetic genealogy. It turned out it was two perpetrators working alone. Gary Hartman was convicted of first-degree murder and rape in 2020 and was sentenced to 26 years in Michelle's case. Robert Washburn pleaded guilty to first-degree murder and was sentenced to 27 years in Jennifer's case. To hear more about those cases, tune into our episode Point Defiance, which is available on Patreon. In that same episode, I mentioned the case of 10-year-old Adriana Jackson, who was found dead in Pierce County in 2006. 
The last time anyone saw Adriana was when she left to walk to school on December 2nd, 2005, not knowing that school had been canceled due to the snow. Her missing poster was plastered on local businesses for months, but she was gone without a trace. The next year, her skeletonized remains were found by two young boys playing in the woods. Though there were suspects in her case, no one was ever arrested. And as it turned out, when they looked into Adhan's past, there was a chance he could have been involved. Armed with a photo of Adhan, police went back to Adriana's Tillicum neighborhood and showed the photo to residents. They learned that he had been a handyman in the area and that many people near Adriana's home had hired him in the past. Handyman. Yep. Unfortunately, there hasn't been any additional evidence linking Edhan to Adriana's murder, despite them getting yet another search warrant for his property. Her case still remains unsolved to this day. Another case that he was rumored to be involved in was the case of Amber Hagerman, who was the namesake of the Amber Alert. Amber disappeared on January 13, 1996, when she was out riding her bicycle in a parking lot. Despite the community's effort to locate her alive, her body was discovered four days later in a local creek. She died due to asphyxiation. Here's the thing. When a person like Adhan is arrested, it's law enforcement's duty to look at any similar unsolved cases to see if there could be connections. It was announced early on that he was being looked at in the Amber Hagerman case, and the media ran wild with it. In their defense, the Pierce County prosecuting attorney openly theorized that after Edhan raped Sabrina in 2000, he then fled to Texas where he had family living in the area. But the fact of the matter is he wasn't in the area at the time and he was ruled out as a suspect. But I'm talking media frenzy. Because Amber was in Texas. Yes. Okay. Yes. So and she that was a big deal, right? right. That was like the first of its, well, not the first of its kind, but that's, why the Amber Alert right. happened. They're like, oh, he has family in Texas. I bet he got scared after the Sabrina case and, and left in his truck and went there. Which is a valid theory, but you can't just be like out announce there. that. Yeah. You got to look into it before you say anything. Because I can really screw up for other investigations. Like if other people are looking into someone that looks equally good as a suspect and then all the energy goes to this other or people think, oh, wasn't that solved? Yep. Wasn't that that guy? And it's like, no, we're looking at this information. Mm -hmm. Now, he very well could have many other victims that we just don't know about yet. And he is very much still a suspect in Adriana's murder. Whether or not he gets new charges, he will spend the rest of his life in prison. And that is enough for some people. Sabrina Rasmussen said that knowing he's behind bars and will be there forever has brought her relief. In fact, she stated that she's glad he wasn't facing the death penalty because by being alive, he's going to suffer longer. She said, quote, it's going to hurt and he's not going to like it and he's going to get his turn, which I was like, ooh, mm -hmm. goosebumps. <laughs> Zena Linick was described by those that knew her as shy and smart. She loved tetherball and playing outside with her friends and siblings. She was laid to rest at the Oakwood Hill Cemetery in Tacoma, and though she's gone, the impact she made on her family, friends, and her community is still very much alive. Everyone remembers her and even designed and built a playground at McCarver Elementary School to celebrate her and her Ukrainian heritage. The park features a poem that was written just for her, which I thought was very sweet. Yeah. 
All right, let's dig into this one. The Amber Alert situation, which yeah. so a, a lot of a lot of suing has happened. Okay. So from him to media or to police? Police, or? a lot okay. of people. So the estate Zena's estate and her family members um, they filed a wrongful death suit against DOC, DSHS, Pierce County, and City of Tacoma, basically saying if there wasn't a delay and the Amber Alert, like possibly could have been found. So I don't know if that's the case, especially if his story happens to be true. I don't know if that is the case at all. Yeah, I don't know that it would matter. And so often we hear it, like I said, um, with the runaway train episode where I talked about Polly Class and how by the time police encountered the killer 40 minutes later or an hour and a half or something, she was already dead. Yeah. And that happens in these cases. Yeah. It's often like so quickly. So I don't know that it's the matter of that as much as it's a matter of they need to do exactly. that to be like, you guys can't do this to another family. Exactly. So and that's what happened. So uh, I don't believe they won any of their lawsuits. But what did happen is Tacoma was like, we got to fix this issue we need to have a whole group a group of people who have the ability to make that Amber Alert go live. Mm-hmm. So it's not just one person's job. It is That's a team. That's nuts. That's like... Right? Because if you're on call, then it's your duty. But if you're sleeping, if you've been working and you go to sleep, someone else needs to take that duty over. Yeah. Like, that's just the stupidest process I ever heard about. Yeah. That's... So we that's had, We had a more thorough process for a school day. Like we I had, know. we had phone trees for our yeah, staff, right? Like, like, why is that not the now? The other thing that really chapped my ass is that sergeant was never formally disciplined. He got a little note in his file, but like he didn't get in trouble. Neither did the police department in general. Uh, what are you saying? Like for what specific thing? For like not filing the Amber Alert. Oh, that guy, <laughs> oh yeah. And yeah. when you were supposed to, like, if you are sleeping, don't answer your phone. Yeah. Then somebody else will need to do. I mean, in that case, I don't think anyone else could have. They would have kept calling. But I just I think that's so silly. Like he should have been punished. But I guess at my work, when somebody has an error, we don't dwell on it. We just fix it. Right. So I think that's what they did. They fixed the problem. I was going to say, or when you've been set up to fail is I mean, that's horrible that he was just like, oh, I'll get it later. Just kidding. I took a sleeping pill. So that's on him. But when the system sets you up to fail. What can you do? Um, Sabrina Rasmussen also sued Washington State for neglecting to protect her. And I don't Good. know what the outcome was of that. Um, but basically, because he could have been caught all these times and like mm-hmm. never was caught for having that underage girl living with him, yep. tre- treating her as some sort of sex slave, a child. Yeah. I mean, like, had they caught that, he probably would have been off the streets and she yeah. would have never been hurt. Like, mm-hmm. there's so, so many things that happen where this guy could have been behind bars. And so I think, honestly, whether or not they win, just being able to, like, put it on court records. Exactly. Calls it out. And to have the responsibility taken. And maybe, like these suspects, it's funny, I've got in two episodes a case that's somewhat similar where it's like, how many chances are you going to give this guy who keeps proving that he can't do it right? Mm-hmm. Like that he can't stay safe. And you hope that maybe it's the same with the police or the local authorities or the local government or whatever it is that's being part of these conversations. You would hope that eventually they look and go, holy cow, we really got to do something here. The mm-hmm. same way they would look at these guys who, you know, by the 10th chance, well, maybe we should really put you away for a while and i know we don't want to we don't want to do the foreshadowing or basically looking at someone's past to like 
look for indicators, but I mean, he had them all, right? So in yeah. 1990, when he was busted and had to do therapy, they learned that his childhood, he had been sexually abused by a sibling. He had been abused by his father. He was a severe alcoholic. He was aggressive and abusive his entire life. I mean, it's red flag after yeah. red flag. And you'd think like the doctors that have to see these people and to know like, yes, he has all these mental issues and conditions and whatever you want to, to call them combined with this really intense history, combined with behaviors he's displayed. Mm -hmm. But so often it's like you look at the opportunities for either rehabilitation yeah. or incarceration and you see these breaks that they're given. Because who is going to pay for this? Right. The children that he raped. Right. The, the people that he killed. And so they just look at it and go, oh, well, he's only done three months for assault. And then you look at it and you go, oh, it was th only three months, but he was sentenced to 10 years and then got out. It's just like, I know it's a manpower thing. I know it's a money thing. I know it's a people thing. But to just really look at those cases. It's to just, just too many missed opportunities yeah. to have saved a life. And, and that's so sad. And a really great line I heard on something. I was probably a dateline or who knows what. And it was like, how many women have to die to prove that this guy needs another chance. Yeah. And how often do we see or hear that? You know, where it's like, why is it for this guy to have an opportunity to say, no, I can be at, um, you know, a rehab facility or a halfway home. No, I can be out in the world. No, I can do it. And the way to prove it is like by not killing someone. And then he kills someone. And then it's like, dadgummit, you didn't do it. Okay, let's reevaluate. <laughs> it's like, why is that the cost? How... Make that make sense. So do you have <sighs> any burning questions to ask Lindsay when we get her on the show? Ooh. I have a few cases I want to talk to her about because, as you know, I've covered some that she she actually worked on the cold cases of Jenny Bastian and Michelle oh, Welsh. Okay. And she's the reason uh, that genetic genealogy match happened. She retired oh, wow. the month before the match happened. That's cool. And so she's got that. I mean, that's definitely her win I think there and she's very close with the families um, but there are a ton of cases she's worked on she's got the inside scoop on a lot of DNA stuff so I, I'm excited to talk to her yeah, I, I definitely cool want to talk about this one but if you think of more let me know I really would like to know more like the process like what does she think in her expert opinion is the answer to fixing the problems that we so often have to talk about. Well, she does kind of dive into that in her book because she's led a lot of task force and created a lot of movement on things. She um, pushed for DNA to be to be taken from violent offenders earlier on, not when they're dismissed from prison. Oh, smart. Like on intake instead. Right. And that's the reason they do that in Washington. She's been on um, child task force looking for missing kids. Like she actively made things better but right. it, it takes a toll on you and she so, yeah had so to that retire. would be my question like is it is it truly a budget thing because that way the ratio can be like 10 cases per one detective mm. is it really like a lack of training is it ego is it that it's like military guys that are brought in and not someone like her that like can see where problems can be solved you yeah, know what i mean great so question. i would just be curious like what she really sees as more than the Band-Aid alternative, because however anyone feels about police, you can't deny that there are issues in in 
just police work in general, whether it's a lack of staff or lack of, lack of protocol yeah. or lack of following protocol. or just differences between agencies. Yeah. Or lack of overhead, you know, people making mistakes and not, you know, whether it's the Amber Alert guy or like my Patreon where they kept the phones for months on end. Yeah. You can't hide it. You got to fix it. And I, that's a really I will ask so, her. And yeah, I'm just so, curious what that. If anyone has questions, yeah. let us know in like the next week because it's going to happen. Yeah. Murder in the rain at gmail.com. We're going to ask Lindsay some questions. So send them in and I'll pick a few. And yeah, that'd be great. it should be a really good episode. Yeah, that'll be interesting. And it's cool to hear, too, that she was like, I'm going to do some detective work and I'm going to put these pieces together because I feel like so often it's like, well, the neighbor finally called in two years later and gave the exact description and the cops went and arrested him. You know, well, you know, she she worked so it's on a really lot. Really nice to hear, like detective work. I loved reading it because she went to old cold cases. So basically, she uh, in high school read the book Stranger Beside Me and mm. was like obsessed and was like, "I want to be that detective. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be a police officer." Worked her way up very quickly. I think she said age 23, she got promoted to detective. And the first thing she started doing was reading every cold case that you know the detective That's she cool. worked with had, and she ultimately got to close a few of them. And it was just really neat to see her going back through everything, re-interviewing people mm -hmm. um, and looking at a new angle through female eyes, female mm -hmm. woman of color eyes. Um, and I think it really, her career was pretty outstanding. So I'm excited she's interested to talk and, to us. And intent makes such a difference because she sounds like someone that's like, I want to be that helper like that person and I want to give these families answers. Yep. And that's why I'm going to dig into this stuff. And so often we either literally read it or things are alluded to where it's like the ego of the detective is what's driving that. That it's not, oh, I want to close that so I can help them and we can get somebody off the street. It's like, I'm going to close it. Like, I'm going to be the guy to do it. And that intention makes such a difference. Yeah, I mean, the, the perspective I got from her writing was she worked with some pretty great detectives mm -hmm. and they did a lot of good. And Washington has great closure stats on some of these cases compared to a lot of places. I don't know. I would read the book. It's called In My DNA and it is out today. Cool. Get it. Well, it's now. Hot. There's a link in our show notes. Get it. Get it. Get it. Get it. Go get it. And Don't then send it. us questions. Did you get it? How long was her career? 21 like, years. Ooh, wow. That's so she's time. only a wow. little, but she's only a little bit older than me. Yeah, she I went in right I, out of high school. I, I was uh, looking at her on, on, or not her, but that online. Yeah, she looks very young. It's you were wild. ordering that book. Give me that book. I, I already <laughs> bought it, so you guys can read it if you no, want. No, two copies, please. My highlights are pretty funny, though. You will be very confused because there were things I just wanted to like ask her about, so I oh, just highlighted right. it. Anyway. No one said anything when I nailed the Astro van. I know. No, yeah. I said it oh, with I, my tone. I, oh. Did you not hear it? No. And I kind of gasped and laughed yeah. when she said that. Mm, mm, <laughs> she gasped mm, and I mm. said, Astro. Oh, okay. well, good. <laughs> you got your credit. Praise me. Put this at the end of the episode because you need your dues. I need them. Nineties influenced silky button up looking um, power blouse. Okay, and then I also got kind of a tunic with. Are you going to um, do the red light special? 
Possibly, yes. I also am showing my boobs off today. Oh, good. Okay. Like sounded like Jessica Tandy. 40 agents to help the Tacoma police. Help the who? The Tacoma police. Excuse me. Let me ship my water. It took seven years for Adnan. Adnan. Whoops. Wrong story. It's like I'm suddenly can't talk. Are you thinking of raisins? California wrinkle boys. No, this is a black Dodge truck in the year 2000. In the year 2000. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>